Hello and welcome to the Brazilian Report's live discussion on today's September 7th protest. I'm June Marshall, uh, the editor of the Brazilian Report, and I'm in Sao Paulo. And Feliz Dia da Independência to all of the Brazilians watching, and a very good evening to the rest of you. So, what was meant to be a momentous day in Brazilian history turned out to be, you know, pretty interesting. And I think today's events are hardly a game changer, but they certainly will go down in the history of the Jair Bolsonaro president. So if you've slept all the way through from yesterday and are just joining us now, wondering what the hell we're talking about, Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, called for mass protests today on the 199th anniversary of Brazil's independence. And while these demonstrations were nominally to preserve the freedom of the Brazilian people, the real target was the Supreme Court and factions of Congress. Now, big demos were planned in Brasilia, the capital, and in Sao Paulo, Brazil's biggest city. And they had a pretty reasonable turnout. Uh, police in Brasilia estimated 400,000 people marching on the capital, while the organizers themselves went for the much more conservative 150,000. And police figures in Sao Paulo estimated 125,000 people on the streets of Paulista Avenue in the biggest city in Brazil. So big numbers, but still way below what the government was expecting. So to break down today's events, I'm joined by Brazilian Report Editor-in-Chief, Gustavo Ribeiro, who's in Brasilia. Say hello, Gustavo. Hello, thanks uh, for for calling me, Ewan. Excellent. And we're also delighted to welcome a special guest, our very own Dr. Ray, but not that Dr. Ray. Uh, it's <laughs> Beatriz Ray, the NSF Gora uh, Visiting Fellow at Johns Hopkins University, and she's a columnist at the Brazilian Report, and she happens to be in Washington, D.C. right at this minute. Great to speak to you, Beatriz. Hi, Yuan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Lovely. So let's kick off with the questions that everyone has been asking themselves. Was this protest a triumph for the Brazilian government, or was it more of a flop? I'm going to go to Gustavo here because you were actually at the protest in Brasilia. Tell us, what did you make of it? Well, it was, for me, it was one of the biggest crowds I've seen in protests in Brasilia in person. It was certainly not the biggest, but they were quite sizable. And uh, one thing that is interesting is that uh, in the lead up to this event, uh, we were all expecting a situation uh, in the sort of uh, do or die for Bolsonaro, either a massive turnout that would enable him to uh, be even more radical than he's... Uh, at the moment and uh, going uh, beyond words in his attacks to the Supreme Court. There was gossip in Brasilia that he was planning a sort of decree to impeach Supreme Court justices, and uh, which is, of course, totally illegal. But uh, if he could have felt enabled by uh, a massive turnout. Uh, on the other uh, probability was a major flop and uh, very... Uh, uh, little crowds that uh, would essentially kill his administration one and a half year before uh, the end of his term. And I, I think we got to a point, to a middle ground. It was neither a triumph nor a massive flop. Uh, these crowds were big, big enough for Bolsonaro to remain at the center of the political uh, arena 
and uh, to continue creating havoc uh, in the Brazilian political system, but not strong enough uh, to maybe topple democracy or maybe do something more drastic as he uh, hints all the time that he wants to. And so what did you see on the streets then? What were the what were the kind of makeup? What was the crowds? What kind of demographics are we talking here? And in terms of the estimates that we've seen, I mean, we've seen the, uh, the military police in the federal district suggesting that there were 400,000 people there. And we've seen the organizers themselves say that there was 150,000 people there. Where do you think the truth lies? Well, I think uh, 150 might be closer to the actual numbers. Um, the makeup of this crowd was very uh, varied. It was, it was quite varied. We had families, kids, people bringing their pets, everyone in yellow, green, and uh, blue, the colors of the Brazilian flag. We also had a massive uh, turnout by uh, people in the agricultural sector, we had trucks, uh, we had people with uh, uh, barbecue stands uh, uh, distributing meat uh, to everyone to, you know, a way of uh, doing uh, their, their advertising for the Brazilian meat industry. Uh, we had uh, from people who thought they were there just to support the, the leader they believe, but also extremists who were ready to commit violence uh, on his behalf. There were people who said that... Uh, they were quite disappointed that Bolsonaro was not driving riot trucks in order to seize the Supreme Court building in Congress. Uh, so it was, we had a little bit of everything there. And, and uh, Beatriz, going on to Bolsonaro's speech itself, um, he said not only in his speech in Brasilia, but also again in Sao Paulo, he suggested that, I can just pull up the quote here, that, um, well, he essentially said that he might disobey rulings by the Supreme Court if he thinks that those rulings are, quote, unconstitutional. So, you know, what happens if Bolsonaro does something like that? What happens if he goes against the Supreme Court? Uh, well, we're in the middle of an institutional crisis already. And what the president is trying to do is to escalate that crisis even further. Um, I was just, uh, before the live started, I shared with Gustavo, uh, apparently he's also trying to uh, ask the Minister of Justice to allow uh, police officers to not uh, abide by decisions if he or somebody considers them unconstitutional. So he's really trying to push uh, the rope very, very far. Uh, I think today the two speeches, but particularly the one in Sao Paulo, were very damaging to Brazilian democracy. I am very worried. And I think right now it's, it's really the time that we should be uh, denouncing the, his anti-democratic stances in, in outbursts like it happened today. But uh, if I may, uh, a lot of people have been denouncing his anti-democratic uh, moves for two and, and a half years right now. And that doesn't change an iota of what he does. So how should political uh, actors uh, react to what we saw today? Because as we were talking last week in our Explaining Brazil podcast, right now, everyone in the political establishment is kind of paralyzed by the fear that if they do something, they could propel uh, Bolsonaro to 
uh, do the proverbial crossing of the Rubicon. I mean, one could argue that he has crossed the Rubicon on many occasions, but uh, so how must uh, the Supreme Court react or Congress react? Because uh, as, uh, as of now, it has been reported that Supreme Court justices are meeting, convening at this moment to decide what they're going to do. Well, so the literature in political science uh, is not uh, as big as we would want it to be about this topic uh, in terms of just what what should the opposition do in a situation that you have a president that is clearly anti-democratic and then it's pushing for what we call an executive aggrandizement, which is basically he's really trying to eat democracy from inside out, right? That That's what Bolsonaro is trying to do on a daily basis. Well, we do know uh, there are some works that talk about just how radical responses uh, to these types of presidents, to these types of executives are not always the best solution because it really pushes the president to do something worse and causes democratic breakdown. So one one author, one piece of, uh, of work argues for moderate responses um, that uh, involve uh, reinforcing the rule of law and reinforcing democratic norms. The problem is in Brazil, we have been doing that to a certain extent. I think the problem to me right now seems to be that Congress is completely absent from this opposition. We have a few uh, opposition voices in both the House and the Senate, but we don't have Congress as an institution trying to stop the president. And I think that's something that, that we need to do better. And for that to happen, what the literature also says is that we have to have more civil society demonstrations against Bolsonaro. And that can help move congressmen, move parliamentarians to actually embrace the, the movement to stop him. And I think the opposition is organizing itself. We have protests already scheduled for soon, but we need more and we need more people out. And I know that the problem really is that we we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So it's hard for people to go out, but that's what we need to, to make Congress to do its job, right? Yeah, no, uh, when you speak about the pandemic, it was quite scary doing this demonstration in Brasilia because there were very few people wearing masks. Uh, I mean, I'm fully vaccinated and I was wearing two masks, but still it was a very unnerving uh, time to be there because uh, I tried to mingle in the crowd to speak to people. So uh, masks were, were very scarce there. And uh, there were reports of journalists that were forced to remove their masks in oh, order wow. to prove that they were not anti-Bolsonaro and that they were not anti-patriotic. But uh, when you talk about uh, mild uh, or moderate reactions, um, I mean, I would argue we haven't been doing that because uh, outside of a few angry statements, uh, Congress has not been doing anything and the Supreme Court has only started to kind of draw a line in the sand. But do you think it's already too late? I mean, uh, we are in a situation where moderate responses might not have any effect, but drastic responses, like you said, may push Bolsonaro even further in his radicalization. Yes, I think we're in a very complicated situation, namely because the other two branches, and especially Congress, has not been doing its job of checking the president, right? Uh, I think the, the vacuum of power there in terms of Congress 
doing its job to stop him is it's really damaging Brazilian democracy. I think the problem with Gustavo, and the literature also talks a lot about this, is we have a lot of uncertainty in this situation. When you have a president like that, that is trying to subvert democratic institutions, all political actors are going to deal necessarily with uncertainty. And this uncertainty is not only about what the president will do, but also about how the opposition itself is going to behave. Because when we talk about the opposition, we're talking about this black box entity, right? But we know that we have people in Congress, we have civil society, we have a lot of actors that do not necessarily have the same preferences, the same goals, that do not necessarily have the same access to information. So how do you coordinate all these people to make a united front and a front that can also be creative, which is something else that the, the academics talk about, to be creative and united to face Bolsonaro, it is very hard. And again, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this over and over again, but the Congress could be a fundamental actor in this sense, and it's not doing its job. Okay, well, so you mentioned there, Beatriz, you mentioned about the the two speeches that Jair Bolsonaro made, in particular, particular emphasis put on the second speech um, he made in Sao Paulo on Avenida Paulista. And I'd just like to kind of come on to that protest a little bit just now, because that's a, I think almost there's a different analysis to be had of that particular protest. Um, in comparison to Brasilia, because, you know, in Brasilia, it is Independence Day today. There's all sorts of celebrations. Brasilia itself is a planned city, which is not necessarily conducive to mass protest. And as we actually saw with a lot of these kind of aerial images of the protest, it's almost like you could put like three million people in there and it would still look a bit empty. Um, but in Sao Paulo, there was a different strategy. It was more like, let's try and bring in as many people. Let's make that a hub for the kind of southeast of Brazil, almost. Bring people from other cities in the state of Sao Paulo and from other states. Um, I spoke to a lot of people who were at the demonstrations today, and one thing that really came out was that there was a lot of out-of-towners out of there. You know, it was um, the conversations they were overhearing were more like, oh, yeah, so where did you come from? Oh, how long did it take you to get here? How did you get in? All that sort of thing. Um, and even just kind of walking around my neighborhood as well in Sao Paulo, just a lot of kind of, a lot of, a lot of emblems and symbols that there were a lot of people who were arriving from outside of Sao Paulo for that. Um, and it's interesting that what we saw in a lot of other state capitals in Brazil, because a lot of these big protests are usually have this style of, let's have a couple of big protests, but also decent sized protests in almost every state capital. That seems to be the strategy. Today, that wasn't really the case. There was a rather big demonstration in Rio. Um, I heard that there were some crowds in Belo Horizonte, some crowds in Maceió. But beyond that, there doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be the strategy. And the idea was more of let's concentrate on these groups as much as we can in two cities and try to you know, make the biggest show of strength possible. But in the end, do you think that strategy paid off? Because if we look at the numbers for those two protests, that's, you know, it's way off what the government were really planning to bring out in terms of national, uh, sorry, national uh, mobilization. So, like, what do you guys think of that? Do you think that was a smart um, strategy or is the best way to do it just everyone all over the country having their own marches and you add it, up all, it, add it all up at the end and it turned out to be, like, I don't know, like three million? <laughs> what do you think? 
Can I go first? Go ahead. Um, I think what they, what the government wanted, what Bolsonaro wanted was to demonstrate power and uh, like a big amount of power. And I think from his perspective, it was successful because we have to understand that this government, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter for Bolsonaro how many people were there. As long as he can take a picture that shows a minimal amount of people gathering and being around him, he's going to do whatever he wants with that particular picture, right? This is a president that does really not uh, rely on the truth, um, on facts to, to strategize. So I think they wanted a big mass of people and concentrated in one place. And they got that in Sao Paulo, particularly, uh, not so much in Brasilia, but in Sao Paulo, I think they did. And from that perspective, he was successful. It was a successful strategy because then he can get the picture that he said he's, he's going to take um, to the council and, and, and do whatever he wants with that. I don't know if Gustavo has the same perception, but that, that's how I saw all this movement of the ergo business and evangelicals. And I also have a question for Gustavo about the evangelicals or, or you, because I, I haven't been able to assess whether they were there as much as we expected them to be. Uh, but that's why you see this movement of trying to bring people to one place. That's what they wanted to demonstrate that amount of power. Yeah, no, the evangelicals were not that present in uh, in Brasilia. There were very few and scarce. Uh, I did see uh, three people who were uh, praying a sort of trance uh, to free the Supreme Court from evil spirits. But outside of these sort of anecdotal uh, cases, they were not, uh, uh, not nearly as present as agricultural representatives were. Uh, and I, I do agree. I think Bolsonaro uh, did get the photo he was hoping for. I think uh, we're seeing in Twitter sphere a lot of people jumping the gun by saying this is a flop. And uh, not coincidentally, uh, these are people who are not fond of Bolsonaro. So I think that uh, this kind of analysis is also uh, con contaminated by a wishful thinking and by their own cognitive bias. I think that Bolsonaro, uh, of course, was not as successful as he would hope for. But yes, um, the, the good pictures are there. And especially because uh, how this will, um, the repercussion of this with uh, voters, uh, we also have to take uh, in consideration what Beatrice said earlier uh, about the access to information, about where people get their news from. And uh, social media plays a bigger and bigger role in that. So uh, a lot of people will just have access to the photos that uh, uh, give the impression of huge, massive crowds and uh, might be uh, inclined to believe that uh, these protests were more consequential than they actually were. Can I add something to that? I think uh, going to Gustavo's point about how people are saying, oh, the protests were not as uh, massive as Bolsonaro was expecting. I think that's very problematic, problematic for us to say that because we cannot just dismiss the fact that we're a lot of people in the streets today asking for authoritarian practices and institutions. We can't just dismiss that, right? Yeah, it might have been not have been as massive as he expected to, but there were a lot of people there to support his authoritarian uh, maneuvers. So we have to accept that. So if if we're gonna try to oppose him, the first thing we need to do is accept that that's what happened today, uh, even if it wasn't as massive. And uh, 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 to your point, also uh, the 
counter protests, these were major flops. I mean, uh, these were very, uh, very poorly organized. Uh, it did not work. Uh, what kind of message do you both think that this sends and uh, in how people will frame September the 7th and how the oppositions will uh, act from uh, here on? Well, I think if I can just jump in on that question, uh, the, in terms of the, the kind of the opposition protest, I think we have to kind of perhaps even cut a little bit of slack uh, for those for this particular incident because this was one that was, you know, it, it was more organised in opposition to the September 7th pro-Bolsonaro protest. It was more of an idea of, yeah, we have to show face, we have to be out on the street. So when you do something like that, I don't think you're ever really expecting kind of a mass plan and broad engagement in several different places around the country. It definitely was I think, underwhelming for the opposition. Um, although there were a few instances in, um, even in even in Sao Paulo, by the end of the day, the protests at Palido and actually kind of picked up quite a bit, apparently. And some instances in Recife and Rio de Janeiro, which, you know, there's a bit of, uh, there's a bit of positivity there. But I think now the real thing that the, uh, that the opposition has to do is kind of sit down and plan their own uh, proper response to this, something which would, you know, almost emulate this idea of, right, we're going to get as many people as we can in Brasilia, we're going to fill up in mean, Paulista. Now's the right time to do it, you know, as long as the, as long as the coronavirus restrictions and, you know, these kind of safety measures that one can adopt for themselves, as long as people are abiding by that, I think that it's definitely possible um, that the opposition could come back to something. Um, but, you know, it's something we've seen for the last few years. The, the, the right wing in Brazil, and specifically the kind of Bolsonaro core, have been much better at engaging their supporters to come out on the street and just, you know, just do an old-fashioned protest and show numbers and get, as we say, these photos, the photos that we need. Because um, at the end of the day, all comes down to what you see on social media and what you can show people in Congress and what you can show, you know, Supreme Court justices. And say, oh, look at this! Look how many people were there. They're all against you, and they're with me. So that sort of idea. Um, but yeah, I think definitely the opposition lacks um, an organisational capacity. Perhaps now with the relative improvement of the pandemic situation in Brazil, we might see some sort of search of organization. But we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Beatriz, before you, you jump in, if I can add one extra question uh, for you, because uh, one additional problem, one additional hurdle for the oppositions to uh, engage and get massive crowds on the streets is the fact that uh, we cannot say the opposition, but uh, multiple oppositions. We have the left, we have the center-right, uh, pretty much... Uh, uh, everything that is not the far right is currently in the opposition to Bolsonaro, but uh, the right-wing people do not want to demonstrate side-by-side side with uh, the left-wing people because they don't want their mobilization to be misconstrued as any sort of support for former President Lula. Uh, there's a lot of resistance within the left uh, to uh, uh, go side-by-side side with right-wingers who impeached Dilma Rousseff, 
which the left considers a coup. And uh, so, so how something's got to give if they are going to stage this, uh, if civil society is going to stage this protest, you said earlier that they must in order to counter Bolsonaro. Who's going to give? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, I think I would be very rich if I knew the answer to that right now. <laughs> uh, I think I'll go back to what I just said. And I think I'll go back to also uh, the, I think that was the last column I wrote for the present report in which I say that we, the political elites have to accept that we cannot moderate Bolsonaro. That is a myth, right? We, we have been waiting since his election for him to, to moderate his speech and his behavior. And what we've been observing is the opposite. He's increasingly escalating his authoritarian behavior. Uh, so bef before we try to form any coalition within the different oppositions, what we need is to first accept that and accept that that's the common goal. And I don't think that we have passed that. I think there are still some people in Congress, for instance, um, from some of these center parties that believe that he will, that, that's that's only things that he says he says to, to mobilize his supporters. That's not actually what he will do. So I think there is a first stage that we need to go through that is to accept that he will not moderate his behavior, that he is interested in staying in power, that he has been saying that, he has been giving every indication that that's what he wants to do. And then we can start... Uh, because once we once we acknowledge that the gravity of that, then I think people will be able to put aside some of it that some of their uh, own goals to try to combine into uh, some sort of coalition. And that might be naive. Right. I think um, we're in a very polarized environment in Brazil. Um, we're still dealing with a lot of anti-workers party sentiment, uh, a lot of anti-corruption sentiment. So all of these things. Uh, are going to be on the table when we're having a conversation about how to form a group that will be able to stop him. Uh, but I, I agree with you on hundred uh, percent. I think we have to, we have to mobilize. We have to put people on the streets. If we don't do that, the message that's going to, after this September 7th is that he was able to put some people, not as much as he wanted, but they were there. There are pictures he can use them. So we need to, the, the opposition needs to, uh, when I say we, um, I'm thinking abstractively, right? But the opposition needs to organize to be able to do that. Um, otherwise, it's just his narrative that will prevail. And uh, you, you mentioned that uh, we must acknowledge and we must uh, come to terms with the fact that Bolsonaro will never be moderate. Uh, he only has token gestures of moderation. And then two or three days, one week later, he will... Uh, lash even further, he will move the goalposts a little bit further, uh, or the goalposts of what is acceptable in Brazilian democracy. But there's an additional pickle, is the fact that, okay, let's assume Congress decides to impeach him and does it. Uh, it doesn't mean we're going to have a, a Democrat uh, as head of state, because uh, Vice President Hamilton Mourão uh, in 2017, he was calling for a military uh, intervention, which is a Brazilian dog whistle term for coup d'etat. And uh, he was side by side with Bolsonaro in Brasilia today. And that's, that's something I'd just like to bring up quickly, because in response to these protests today, 
we have seen, I think, well, for me personally, it's quite a surprising amount of mentions um, right away from parties and political actors of impeachment. Um, this thing that we thought was, you know, was now impossible. There wasn't enough time to do it. It was dead and buried. There was no chance Bolsonaro could get impeached anymore. But we have several parties suggesting that this is something that we want to do. Individual politicians, everyone just mentioning the I word all of a sudden. Um, is it possible? Is there time? Is there the, you know, is there the broad will to do it? And why now is it? Do they think that there wasn't enough people out on the streets? Do they think that wasn't a show of support, a show of strength? I ask you guys. <laughs> or they think that the tone was too much. That's also possible, especially the second speech. Um, mm. He was very clear in that second speech about not uh, obeying to any orders that comes from the Supreme Court. I think that was, if if anybody believed they hadn't crossed the Rubicon, he, I think they should start believing after that speech today. Um, I don't know, Gustavo, do you want to share your thoughts and I'll, I'll jump after you? I'm much uh, less optimistic about uh, believing that uh, we're going to have parties that will actually do what they are supposed to do, which is, uh, if you're in the opposition, oppose the government. Uh, I actually do believe that, uh, for instance, this uh, impeachment talk uh, was uh, very much present within the Brazilian Social Democracy Party, which is a center-right party that was uh, at the center of the Dilma Rousseff impeachment and has kind of flirted back and forth, uh, gone back and forth between neutrality and joining Bolsonaro. Uh, for one, the, the, the caucus, the PSDB caucus in the House is controlled by Aécio Neves, who, who a former runner-up uh, in the presidential election, and he is pro-Bolsonaro to the bone. Uh, and he controls the caucus, so I, I do not believe they will actually move forward. I think it's more of an electoral game to say we are conservative, but we're not radical as Bolsonaro, so keep that in mind in 2022 in order to vote for us. I don't think there's there has never been shortage of reasons to impeach Bolsonaro. I think he commits an impeachable offense almost every day. Uh, Waking up in the morning. <laughs> And uh, so I, I don't see, and, for, and there's another point. There's only one individual in Brazil who can open these, impe these impeachment proceedings, and it's uh, House Speaker Arthur Lira. Uh, having a president that is not very strong on his own uh, gives him a lot of leverage to negotiate budgetary amendments, uh, nominations to the government executive positions, uh, and uh, I mean, if there were, if we had any other president, most probably Arthur Lira would not have the position he has today. He would not have the power he has today, and he would not have the access to the budget, the the national budget that he has through the people he nominates to key positions that uh, have big contracts that uh, have a lot of electoral visibility. So uh, there's also a lot of self-interest in Arthur Lira by not keeping Bolsonaro in check. Well, I so I will disagree with one point of what you said, that uh, he wouldn't have that much power uh, in any other government. I think that he could have, because Congress has been getting stronger. Um, 
secret budget aside, I think there has been a process of, of strengthening uh, legislative institutions. Uh, the problem is, what you said, that he's really benefiting from from the system, and he he has no interest uh, in in acting against that. Arturita is a it was a congressman who he's known in the house by just like the guy who only thinks about him about himself, right? This is his reputation. He's very self-interest. And I saw that besides the PSDB, but apparently the big center parties are also uh, consulting their their ranks about whether there would be interest in impeachment. I'll only believe it when I see it, because even if there is, they have to convince Artulita to actually accept uh, the the request, which right now I don't see. I, did did he even say anything today about the, the protests? I haven't heard from him. No, he has been the biggest absence of the day. Yeah. Nobody has heard of him, from him. <laughs> has, um, has the has Rodrigo Pacheco say, said anything? No. Uh, I didn't say uh, only because Bolsonaro at one point he said he would call the Council of the Republic, which is like this body that can only be summed uh, when we're discussing a, a, a state of emergency or of a state of defense, something very drastic. And he only said uh, I was never informed about this kind of meeting. But uh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there's there's something I wanted to kind of touch on here. I kind of. Uh, Slightly different subject. Um, in the weeks leading up to this protest, or both of these protests, I think there was a lot of kind of media reaction and kind of the um, the kind of Twitter commentators and political pundits kind of suggesting that there was a genuine risk of you know potentially a power grab, some sort of you know democratic rupture a coup or violence, at least, or even things like, you know, storming the Supreme Court. There was almost this kind of fear and maybe expectation among some people that we would, we would actually see something like that. And, you know, we didn't. Um, there was no coup. There was, you know, there was some violence. There was some restricted violence, but, you know, definitely not what a lot of people were expecting. Um, the Supreme Court was not stormed after all. Who would have thought that? <laughs> and, you know, shortly after, uh, Bolsonaro spoke at the Brasilia protest. His son, Senator Flavio Bolsonaro, he tweeted out that, you know, oh, no, this protest was never anything to do with kind of taking on the Supreme Court or anything to do with democratic rupture. You guys got it wrong, you know. Is, do you think the media potentially has a bit of, you know, a share of the blame here of getting like a bit carried away, perhaps? Or were we perfectly within the rights to believe that, oh, something like this could happen? Interested to hear what you think about this. Either of you. you want to go first? Well, I think that he has been uh, adopting a rhetoric that is very uh, violent and that he has been threatening the Supreme Court. Um, and the media has been printing that. So, if anything, we were misled by Bolsonaro himself. Um, because that's the behavior he has demonstrated so far. Um, I don't see any. I don't see anything that if there, if there is one thing that I think the media did wrong, and I want to ask you both about this too, because I'm very curious. Not being there um, was the role of the military police. Um, that was something that a lot of people say said that they. A lot of the press said 
uh, and some researchers do said that the the military police is pro Bolsonaro and they're going to join the protests. They're going to join the demonstrations, and that's going to feed into the whole violence narrative. And I'm not sure the extent to it, to which that happened. Am I wrong? Well, uh, I do believe that uh, th there there are a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, the media also uh, uh, researchers published that. Uh, there is, uh, uh, in terms of political views, yes, the military police is very much pro Bolsonaro, and there were, uh, to be fair to uh, major outlets, there were uh, colonels and uh, senior military police officers who wanted to join um, this protest. So I asked myself, uh, at what point did the media coverage taint mm. these uh, things from actually happening? Because we saw in São Paulo. Governor João Doria actually reprimanding some of the officers who uh, were more vocal about it. Uh, and uh, Elon was asking about the, 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 the fact that we didn't have like the, the, the invasion of the Bastille or the Supreme Court here. Yeah, no one touched the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think uh, that that was also because of a strategic mistake made by the protesters. Uh, because I think they picked too early. They started uh, the protest yeah. yesterday. Uh, they uh, passed through police barricades. Um, and then at that point, everybody was looking at it like, oh, this is a bad omen. Because we saw lots of trucks, pickup trucks, vehicles of people that was very in a very radical rhetoric promising to storm the Supreme Court. And the police was doing nothing. There, there are a couple of things. One, they were very much outnumbered. Uh, maybe they were not prepared for that. Uh, but the fact that these wave of people, uh, these throngs of people just pushed the first police line, uh, generated a reaction in poli uh, political brokers in Brasilia. So we had the chief justice calling the Brasilia governor to have more uh, police officers securing the, the Supreme Court building. We had everyone on their heels saying, okay, uh, shit's going to get real. We have to prepare ourselves for something. And uh, Amanda Audi, who is uh, one of our Brasilia correspondents, she talked to uh, a few fellows who uh, said that their plan was actually to storm the Supreme Court and they were pissed off because they said, okay, uh, we had a bunch of jackasses who jumped the gun and they screwed uh, everyone's plan. I mean, uh, uh, to what point this is just bravado and to what point this is actual an actual intent, it, it, it's hard to measure. But uh, when we see what was being uh, shared on Telegram groups, uh, when we see what was being shared on social media in general, it's hard to uh, minimize the intent, the violent intent in that. And uh, fortunately, I think they made this mistake and then uh, they had everyone prepared for, for the, the D-Day. That's an excellent point. So basically it was yeah. their fault. I think so, yes. Well, from what from what I saw of the the, kind of the police response, like the official statements um, coming out after that particular incident where they kind of stormed the Esplanade in Brasilia, was that um, they noted that a lot of these protesters uh, were drunk 
intoxicated. They had just arrived. They were in a really happy kind of festive mood. And, you know, maybe that's what you get for having an open bar on the coach to Brasilia. That might have just <laughs> ruined the whole thing for them. <laughs> I mean, you know, when it was a Monday night in Brasilia, there's not that much thing to do outside of opening <laughs> beer can and, and having a few exactly. seats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, and, uh, the, the risk is not totally gone because there are a lot of protesters who say they have supplies to stay for at least one more week there and they plan to stay there and uh, uh, essentially camp in the Esplanade. Uh, uh, Beatriz, you were talking... Uh, so you, you said several times uh, you talked about um, the the photograph, the, the social media photographs. What is the impact of having pro Bolsonaro people just living uh, between the ministries uh, after this <laughs> event we saw today? I really don't know. It, it depends on how many there are. Do we have an like an, an idea of how many would stick? I mean, people get tired of protesting too. No. Yes. Uh, and, um, let's just remember the current weather conditions in Brasilia as well. Let's also, hope that. they have some good air conditioning on hand. <laughs> if there, yes, I don't know. And also, like, I don't think these are people that are necessarily uh, seasoned in protesting, right? Uh, they don't have a lot of experience with protest. Um, like the indigenous uh, protests that's happening in Brasilia, these are people that are used to, because they they, they come to Brasilia to have their voices heard constantly. Uh, but this group, I don't know the extent to which they have experience in protesting. So I don't know if it's just like six people camping in the main, I, I, I think it's going to be bad for them. Uh, if that's, that's yeah. the photograph that, that goes to social media. Not a great look. No. Um, uh, another thing which I noticed today, and I think most people noticed actually, if you were following the protest on social media, was the abundance of signs and placards written in foreign languages. Um, and, you know, this might have been kind of that's the, they were the only ones that were photographed, so they were the only ones that we saw, but, you know, there seemed to be an absolute slew of of these signs written in English, French, German, um, lots of spelling mistakes and lots of grammar mistakes, which I think uh, enjoy people, uh, we enjoyed quite a lot. But the, um, what's behind Macron that? Why, why? <laughs> Macron with a K, yeah. Um, well, yeah, why? Why have we got that? Why now? Um, I, mean, I know it's always been somewhat of an element of uh, kind of right-wing uh, Bolsonarista protest in Brazil. There has always been some sort of uh, an idea of let's just do some things in English so that maybe Fox News will notice it, something like that. Uh, but this seems to be something that was, was planned. Um, why do you think? I think they were trying to project power. Um, that's part of it. Uh, sending a signal to other countries uh, about what's happening in Brazil, that the Supreme Court is taking over everything and that the Supreme Court is to be blamed uh, for every single thing happening in Brazil. I think they're trying to project that. And by putting the, the signs in other languages, my understanding is that they're trying to project that power that Bolsonaro wanted to project, that they are dialoguing with outside people. I don't know, Gustav, is that your assessment? 
Yes, no, I, I do. Uh, I think there, that has a lot to do with uh, our straight dog complex in Brazil that uh, we are validated by foreigners' attentions and uh, maybe if high sees assigned in Italian, they were like, oh, okay, uh, let's talk to these fellows and uh, see what they have to, to, to say to us. So I, I think there's a lot of that too. Um, but uh, going back to uh, the opposition, just changing the subject a little bit, because this is something that is bugging me uh, for the entire day. This government, this administration, has been characterized by inaction. Uh, it chose not to tackle the pandemic. It is doing virtually nothing to tame inflation. It is doing very little to uh, reduce the job crisis and is doing next to nothing to prevent uh, the water crisis from becoming uh, an energy crisis that, uh, will, uh, will, that will put power outages and power rationing um, in our reality, uh, which would just add insult to injury in terms of uh, this multi-headed crisis we're, we're dealing with. And uh, we were talking about uh, how the opposition should um, act, react to what Bolsonaro did today, but how does a government that does not govern uh, derails the job of an opposition? I mean, it, it's hard uh, because... Then I read an article at Revista Piauí that has a very interesting point that uh, that almost flips the roles that uh, uh, it becomes the opposition which proposes policy making and then puts the government in the role of the opposition, which is a very schizophrenic outlook for a political system. But Beatriz, uh, how should opposition groups react when you have a government that simply does not act? Well, I think it is natural that the opposition is the one doing the policy making because uh, the, the administration is a reflect, it, it reflects Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro as the congressman uh, was never interested in lawmaking. So he continues to not be interested in policy making and he is there just to do the sort of thing he did today. So I think, there is no vacuum in power if he's not doing it, somebody else will do it. Um, so I think it's natural, for instance, that the uh, the help that Brazilian citizens got for the pandemic, uh, that was uh, gestated, that was uh, made inside uh, the opposition in Congress. So I think that's a natural development given that he lacks the interest um, to do that. And I think that's partly maybe, now I'm here, I'm being very naive, but maybe that's why the opposition in Congress has been struggling to be more fearful because it's taking this load of trying to make policy, whereas there is no guidance from the executive, which is something that is the norm in Brazil. The, the, the executive branch, the president is the one that is the focal point for policy making, and that is not happening. It hasn't happened at all during the Bolsonaro administration. When he tries to do something, everything kabooms before it even gets to Congress. So. Uh, I think that might be part of the reason that uh, the opposition in Congress, at least, hasn't been that fearful. Um, but I think that they they really have to to understand the gravity of the situation that we're in. Um, I want to say something uh, that we haven't talked about today. That is, um, even if we get safe and sound to the 22 election, and even if Bolsonaro loses the election, 
He has been giving us every signal that he will not accept the results of that election. And is the opposition prepared to deal with that situation? We know how it went here. I I don't I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, I go back to Elon's point about how we are still lacking that sort of demonstration that gives for instance, congressmen, the, the information they need to say, oh, people are unhappy with this government. We need more of that. And we need an opposition that starts to think about what's going to happen once he doesn't accept defeat, if that's what happens. We saw what happened here in the U.S. with uh, President Trump, uh, but the institutions here in the U.S. are more solid than in Brazil. Well, I, think, I think kind of on that um on that point, one of the one of the features, I think, of the Bolsonaro government um, throughout his time, and you can say this for a lot of other kind of authoritative, authoritative leaning governments around the world and in history as well. Um, but their the messaging, their messaging to their supporters, their messaging to the press, even their messaging to their opposition is necessarily ambiguous. There's a point made there's a, there's an intention made to, mm-hmm. to kind of muddy the waters and you know make everyone second guess themselves a great example i think is is what happened today we had bolsonaro and a lot of his uh, kind of inner circle talking about these protests and giving these declarations which it just sounded like yeah we, we we're planning to we're planning to take power here today but there's we're we're, we're, we're set for violence today but at the same time saying that, oh, no, you know, these are going to be, going to be democratic protests. We're going, to, we're going to obey the rules and there's not going to be any sort of infringement. And then just at the same time, just constantly feeding this ambiguity throughout um, throughout the discourse around something like this. And yeah, like, I don't want to go outside of the constitutional boundaries, but... But you <laughs> do in the next sentence, yeah. Um, exactly. And it's it's... I think the, the the goal of this, and this is something which, I mean, you could even go back to um, someone like Getulio Vargas. Getulio Vargas would do this sort of thing of being really um, intentionally ambiguous. Um, I believe he said famously, I might be misquoting him here, um, but he said that I prefer that other people interpret me as opposed to, you know, I want them to kind of make their own mind up about me, what they think. What but, they want to do. But you know, like this has been going on for how how many years now? Isn't it time that the opposition learned that this is the type of communication that we get, and that there we can't expect him to behave democratically or to pursue a democratic discourse? Or be, does that make sense? Should should mm. we should we ha- should we expect any learning throughout the, the years of his administration? But I think the lack of learning is also because of the fact that the political establishment continues to underestimate Bolsonaro. And Bolsonaro always proves that betting against him is more often than not a bad bet. Uh, I remember uh, in 2017, uh, when I, I first thought, okay, this guy may be on his way to the presidency because uh, the way he flipped his discourse, he was known as this homophobic, racist guy, and then he started shifting his messaging by saying, I'm not homophobic, I'm against the dictatorship of uh, gay rights uh, activists. I'm not racist, I'm just for equal opportunity and uh, racial quotas will uh, screw over uh, white people who are poor. 
and will benefit the, the few black people who are rich. Uh, and by saying that, like he leaves the position of offense and takes a more defensive, like I'm protecting our society. Uh, and I remember writing in 2017, uh, six reasons why Bolsonaro could become president. And I had a, a business associate at the time who called me to say it was uh, extremely stupid what I had written and that he would bet me uh, a bottle of whiskey that Bolsonaro would not even crack the 10% mark. I'm still waiting for that bottle, by the way. But, <laughs> but uh, the thing is, like every time people say, oh, no, but uh, his messaging is not uh, elaborated enough. It's uh, his words were not reasoned because they were too radical. And they, they always find a way to rationalize his successes uh, by and avoid recognizing his merits. He, he ha he's a, an extremely savvy communicator in this hyper-connectivity era. Uh, and the political establishment, one, still has not picked up uh, how to communicate with the masses now. Uh, in the social media era, in the end-to-end -end encryption message uh, era. And uh, the other thing is, like, they, because they despise Bolsonaro so much, they are never willing to recognize what Bolsonaro is doing correctly to put himself... Uh, which other president will have this kind of econ economy? Uh, uh, over a half a million coronavirus deaths uh, in... Official numbers, uh, the the real numbers, uh, almost any expert will say are much higher than that, and still be able to do what he did today. I mean, we can belittle as much as we want, but it's quite remarkable his resilience and uh, the the guy is is a high a political highlander. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think there's this, that's definitely a good argument. The fact that he's managed to um, to retain support but I think the question is I mean we've got we've got the election next year is it enough is that enough you know the amount of people that came out on the streets potentially representing about what I mean the opinion polls tend to kind of estimate this at about 20 percent of the population 20 to 30 percent of the population who they seem to be you know die-hard Bolsonaro fans they'll follow him wherever he goes they'll uh, they'll come out on the streets whenever they need him which is a huge bonus um, for a politician to have, especially one who's running for president, but is that going to be enough anymore? I mean, the opinion polls are saying it's not, but is it? I, I don't uh, believe that's the right question. That would be the great question if we were talking about a president who is willing to play by the rules. Sorry. I was going to say he exactly is not. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let you finish the thought then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're going back to the same point over and over again. Uh, it is past time the political establishment accepts that he's not going to moderate his behavior, that we should not take him from Grant. Like, we should not dismiss him and his supporters. That was a mistake that was done here in the U.S., and uh, we're doing it in Brazil. We thought Trump could never get elected. Trump was elected. We thought Trump would moderate his behavior once he had a chief of staff. That never happened. So we continue to do the same, to make the same mistake, right? So let's accept that he will not moderate his behavior. Let's accept once and for all that even if he doesn't win the election, he's been telling us that he will not trust any result, that he doesn't count by, with his own hands. So he's telling us what's going to happen. 
I yeah. think we we have to. How do you how do you guys put the the title? Wake up and smell the coffee. That like let's do that. We have to accept that if we want to have any conversation about what strategy should the opposition use, so that we can at least mm. understand the context of what of the actions that are being taken. This is what uh, bugs bugs me the most is that everything he does he does out in the open. Yeah. If there's one thing we cannot say about Bolsonaro is that he's not can, uh, candid about his intentions. Yeah. He, he says what he wants to do and he does it. And everybody's like, nah, this is just bravado. Yeah, no, yeah. he's not going to do it. That's that's for his his supporters. It's for yeah. Twitter. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he got... did, but it was not that bad. <laughs> yeah. It was that bad, but it could be worse. And it's always like this way of tr trivializing everything Bolsonaro says and does. It's... Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that uh, uh, is something that really scares me for 2022 because uh, <laughs> there, there are two months separating election day and uh, inauguration day. If he loses, uh, I mean, let's not forget he has thousands of military uh, officers in his cabinet. There are a lot of people in Brasilia who have told us uh, asking to remain anonymous, that they fear that he could barricade himself in the presidential palace if he loses. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, just on a little point here regarding the the kind of comparison between what happened today and uh, the capital rights in the US, uh, which is, you know, I, I think in broad terms it's a fair comparison because you know you've got these leaders who are following a similar kind of playbook and they're pushing for this uh, kind of demonstration under very kind of a very tense atmosphere. But I think what we also need to remember is that in the US that happened under a situation where Trump lost the election, contested the election, but at the same time it seems to me that the the establishment at large were, you know, supporting the election results. That they were willing to defend the election results and say like, no, like this is Whereas well, Brazil, on the other hand, I don't know. Brazil is like, a lot more. A lot of the Republican legislators were not supporting the result of the election, uh, but I agree with your point. Um, I don't know what would be the reaction of the establishment at that point. I really don't know. I, as Gustavo, I'm very scared for what happens after the election, whether he <laughs> wins or he loses. I'm very scared. <laughs> Yeah. And I think uh, Felipe Campanche has been saying this a lot. I think at that point, we can prepare ourselves for violence. It's, there will be violence. The question is just how much. Okay. On that sobering <laughs> note, um, have we got any more for any more? I think we've done just about an hour here. I think we're ready to wrap this up. If anyone has any closing thoughts, or should we just get this over with? No, I think uh, there's... Uh... Last phrase by Beatrice just broke our spirits. I know, spirit. yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I'm Might sorry, to... <laughs> I, I apologize. It has been a long day. Might have to cut that out. There's children watching. Oh, they are. Anyway, right, guys, thanks very much for joining us here, Beatrice, especially. Thanks for taking Thank the time to me. speak to us and have this lovely little discussion about a very kind of complicated topic. Um, and Gustavo, as always, uh, he came up with the idea as well. You know, credits on him. Um, <laughs> so, if you'd like to just say goodbye to the lovely people who are watching us at home. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Beatriz. And uh, we were going to publish this live as our podcast as well this week. So uh, everybody who missed it can uh, rewind and, and watch back. And Ewan, your folks in Scotland will be able to watch this tomorrow as well to see how Lovely. pretty you look yeah, at the video. Already, yeah, because they're already asleep by now. My mom likes to go to bed around 9 o'clock at latest. So. Um, right. Thanks, everyone. Um, I'm sure we'll get together soon for another uh, hard-hitting discussion. Thanks a lot. Good night, everyone.